You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. First Look offers an inside take on the day's politics. In this episode, host Jonathan Capehart sits down with E.J. Dion, Olivier Knox, and Megan McArdle to discuss the latest on the infrastructure bill, voting rights, and the billionaire space race. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. And we're going to go jump right into it and bring you Olivier Knox. He is the Washington Post national political reporter, but more importantly, he is the anchor of the Daily 202 newsletter. Olivier, welcome to First Look. Good morning. Um, So let's talk infrastructure, because on Wednesday, uh, Senate Democrats released Um, Well, it's infrastructure, but it's also budget, (laughs) right? It's hard to keep them separate, but they're related in that the Democrats released a $3.5 trillion uh, budget blueprint. You describe it as, quote, the largest effort to retool American government since the New Deal. What are some of the, the ambitious proposals? Well, there's a, there are a couple of big thrusts here. One of them has to do with climate, the climate crisis, and turning America into a greener uh, country in terms of uh, reducing emissions, relying more on renewables. That's one big, big thrust uh, that has a lot of progressives uh, happy. You know, I don't want to overstate what's happening in this this thing in the sense that we don't actually have legislative text yet. What we have is a deal among Senate Democrats. We don't have a deal between Senate and House Democrats. Uh, We certainly don't have a deal with Republicans. But yes, so climate's one big thrust. The other big thrust has to do with the social safety net and a lot of stuff that uh, the Biden White House describes as human infrastructure. That's things like like childcare, like expanding Medicare. Expanding Medicare is another big thing that, that progressives are very happy about in this $3.5 trillion package. Again, sort of a notional package because we don't have legislative text. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also write, and anyone who's a... a a news junkie and political junkie knows this, that the path to passage is going to be torturous. You write that it is torturous, but this is the Democrats' best shot at enacting Biden's agenda before the midterms, in which they could lose control of Congress. But here's the thing, and hopefully you'll be able to answer this. Do they really actually have a shot at passing it now, considering you have folks in Congress like Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema? Who are Democrats. Well, well, I don't think they have a shot at, at passing this exactly the way it's being described now by Senate Democratic aides. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, there are there are measures in here, especially in that climate thrust that I was describing, that don't make people like Joe Manchin, uh, who's home state of West Virginia, relies on, on coal, um, don't make him happy. He's already come out and he said, you know, I can't, we can't end fossil fuel subsidies. Um, so in its current configuration, it doesn't look like all Democrats will hang together. And of course, they have to. They have a, you know, a zero vote margin of error in the 50-50 Senate. So in, the, in its current configuration, I'm not really, I don't see how they can get it over the finish line. But it's still really, really early in this process. You know, on the, so it's, the fact that the path to passage is enormously complicated is both a good thing for Democrats and a bad thing for Democrats. It's a bad thing for Democrats because a lot of things can go wrong. You're seeing already some moderate House Democrats speaking uh, anonymously saying, whoa, whoa, this is too big, it's too ambitious, we don't know if we can support it. And and Democrats don't have a big margin of error in the House either. Um, It's a good thing in the sense that they can keep fine-tuning this thing. 
They don't have a lot of time, though, Jonathan. And this is one of the challenges that the, the Biden White House and the Democrats who are pushing this deal, uh, that's a problem that they face. So in its, in its precise form, I, 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 well, in its precise, imprecise form, I guess, uh, which is what we have now, I don't really see them getting this over the, over the finish line easily. Um, but there's still a lot of time, and, um, and I'm sure they're going to try to find a way to keep people like Manchin and Cinema and other moderate Democrats. You know, we always talk about those two senators, but the fact of the matter is there are others who are, you know, content to stay on the sidelines, but who are uneasy about the scope of this kind of legislation. So then on Wednesday, next Wednesday of next week, apparently there's the first procedural vote on, on infrastructure. So considering that final passage, the bill that's finally passed, if it's passed, is going to look a whole lot different than what we're talking about now. What, are you, what do you say about the prospects of, of Democrats winning that procedural vote next week? Right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find out a lot, Jonathan, about the <laughs> willingness about the willingness of both progressives and uh, the centrists or moderates or however you want to describe uh, the, uh, the the Mansion Cinema uh, folks. We're gonna find out a lot about the willingness of those kinds of senators to uh, to stall the Biden agenda. You know, there's a lot of pressure on these folks. They Democrats are are near unanimous that this is their best shot at getting what amounts to a presidency's worth of policy, um, moving that forward. So I, I don't know yet. You know, we need we need first of all, everyone needs to see what this is gonna what, what this is eventually gonna look like. It looks like they're gonna be voting on an incomplete uh, 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 package. I, I'd be I guess I would be a little bit surprised. <clears throat> excuse me, if any one senator or any two senators decided, yeah, you know, I'll be the I'll be the fall person to stall the Biden agenda. Um, in the little bit of time we have left, I, I want to ask you about voting rights. Yesterday we saw. Um, the arrests of voting rights advocates, including Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who is also chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and this comes after President Biden delivered that barn burner of a speech on voting rights uh, last Wednesday in Philadelphia. Um, you've written that there are so some progressives who are still not happy with the president and what he said. Why are they unsatisfied? So the progressives who are unhappy, they love the way that Biden casts the challenge here. You know, he describes it as um, a once in a century threat to the republic. He talks about, he, he uses a lot of apocalyptic language, you know, Jim Crow and steroids, those kinds of expressions. So they're happy with the way he's casting the problem. They don't like the fact that the way he casts the solution doesn't include uh, reform or even uh, an end to the filibuster. And so what, they're, what they argue is um, until he is willing to make a concerted push uh, behind something like that, either 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 ending the filibuster, which is as zero is that's a non-starter, or doing what's called a carve out, finding some way to limit filibusters in some unusual circumstances. Progressives say unless he's willing to do that, uh, it's not enough. Another way of looking at this is what they're arguing is until he makes the kind of personal outreach, personal campaign behind voting rights that he has done for infrastructure, that he did for the American Rescue Plan Act then they're not going to be satisfied. Olivier Knox, welcome to First Look, and thank you for coming to First Look. This is your, your, your first time, hence the welcome. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. All right, let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post contributing columnists and my colleagues, Megan McArdle and EJ Dion. Megan, EJ, welcome back to First Look. Great Thanks to be with you. 
All right, AJ, I'm starting with you. We're going to pick up the voting rights conversation that I was just having with Olivier. And you wrote about it and you noted that if matters are as urgent, and they are, as President Biden laid out in that speech in Philadelphia, there is no excuse um, not to alter the Senate filibuster to get it through the Senate. So, EJ, why isn't he doing it? Well, I think there are a couple of things, uh, but just to go to your core point, uh, that was a really powerful speech. He said this is one of the most important things we face in the country. He analogized what's happening to voting to Jim Crow. Uh, if you are serious about what you say, then you got to do everything you can to pass this bill. We know Republicans aren't going to provide enough or even any votes uh, to get anything through uh, the Congress, uh, including the bill that Joe Manchin himself has been trying to put together. So I think the logic of what Biden says is he's got to get to the point uh, where uh, whether I, I liked uh, Jim Clyburn's line, whether telephonically or through a microphone, that is to say, quietly or publicly, to say the Senate rules have to change to allow passage of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Act. Uh, I think the reason he hasn't done it yet is because of where you started this show. Um, he is very focused, the, the Congress is very focused on passing this big budget plan, this big investment plan. I really liked Olivier's line that it includes a presidency's worth of policy. That's really true. Uh, but we don't have a lot of time here. <clears throat> Just to take an example, uh, the census numbers go to the states for reapportionment in mid-August. Um, if a whole lot of gerrymanders get passed, uh, Republicans are counting on taking back the House just by redrawing the lines, uh, the district lines in states they control. Uh, so I think that eventually Biden has to follow his own logic and figure out how to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and others who might be hiding behind them to say, yeah, we've got to alter the filibuster rules. EJ, one more question to you on this, and, and, and that is, and tell me if I'm being overly optimistic here, but it seems to me President Biden is doing things step by step. A lot of the things that he said in his speech were things that I've heard him say during press availabilities and things like that, but he's just packaged them into one big speech in a significant place in Philadelphia. How likely is it, do you think, that the president will come out against the filibuster and do so in an Oval Office address? That's my well, just as a matter of general principle, I will never try to squash anybody's hope because hope is a virtue. <laughs> uh, but I think that um, I think that Biden increasingly understands two things. One, how serious this is for so many Democrats. People talk about the progressives bringing pressure. A whole lot of the core vote of the Democratic Party was represented in the Oval Office when a big group of civil rights leaders sat down with the president and said, we take this very seriously. These measures are aimed at black Americans, at Latino Americans, at young people, uh, and you've got to do something. Um, and so I think as progress is made on the, uh, on the uh, uh, big investment bill, um, he's going to feel more pressure to turn back to this. I hear there are differences of opinion inside the White House. I hope that White House meeting last week helped settle them 
and told the president, you got to follow through on the great words of your speech in Philadelphia. All right, Megan, your take. I mean, look, I think that this has long been a kind of issue that the Democrats have used for theater rather than for a substantive change, right? And I think you said the, the easiest way to see this was with the voter ID requirements, which I have been hearing for the last 10 to 20 years were the next Jim Crow and so forth. And then it turned out that if you poll, you know, even the majority of black Americans support voter ID requirements and Democrats have just kind of quietly dropped it. Um, and the purpose of this was never to do anything substantive. It was to engage your base on an issue that turns people out at the polls in the midterms. And weirdly also for Republicans, voter require ID requirements don't actually seem to affect turnout much. Um, they don't seem to advantage Republicans. It was just this weird theater issue that both sides kind of used. That's not to say that there are not really deeply concerning things with what Republicans were doing at the state level, but it tends to be less about the ballot access and more about moving the power away from secretaries of state and to legislatures to certify elections. Now that is deeply troubling because you can see a constitutional crisis booming out of that, but it's it's not in the traditional framework that we're used to talking about this issue, which is literally Jim Crow, literally preventing people from just coming to the, the ballot and voting. Mostly what we're talking about is rolling back a lot of pandemic era accommodations. Now, whether they should be rolled back or not is a different issue. Whether they help increase turnout is a different issue. Um, but the, you know, this is not the, the same as going back to a, a situation where literally you could not get access to the ballot if you were the wrong race. Um, and I think that that is, is how they are, it is still going forward. We are getting a passionate speech. We are not going to get a lot of movement out of this, in part because they're just, they're not going to do filibuster reform because they can't, because Joe Manchin doesn't want to. And that is the reality of coalition politics. And again, not about gerrymandering, not about, you know, ballot restriction, but simply the fact that you have to work with senators from moderate states that are much less interested in enabling progressives to pass their agenda than the median Democratic voter and certainly than the activists who are going to show up in, in the offices and press politicians to do what they ask. So, uh, um, so Could okay. I come in on that, Jonathan, real quick? Sure, uh, sure, 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 sure. Because uh, I, I, this is not theater for the people who are supporting this in any way. Uh, take voter ID. Um, the One of the reasons that voter ID isn't so bad is because everything else is happening is so much worse. To quote an old book title, it's like been down so long it looks like up to me. Uh, and that uh, what Stacey Abrams has made very clear, the issue is not voter ID. The issue is states that allow only certain forms of voter ID, like Texas, where you can use your concealed carry permit, but not your state-provided ID from a public university. Um, what Manchin has said is, if you can use a utility bill and other things, voter ID doesn't have to be so terrible. The other stuff they're doing, as Megan kind of conceded toward the end, is really terrible particularly shoving aside the independent uh, people, the independence of the people who count the votes and putting it in partisan hands, the restrictions on voting. Uh, they are trying to cut back on drop boxes in big cities. Guess what? Who votes in big cities? Uh, black people vote in big cities and Democrats vote in big cities. So this is not theater. This is really, really serious. I, with, I withdraw my question to you, EJ, that I was going to ask because you 
hit on every point <laughs> that was going to be in my question with that. So, Megan, I'm going to come back to you, and, and this time to talk about infrastructure. And I wonder, uh, do you think the proposal from the Democrats, the, the $3.2 trillion proposal from the Democrats, risks taking down the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, that's being negotiated now? Uh, I do, right? I mean, look, I, I, I think that there is going to be pressure on a lot of people to do it. There is stuff in there that they really want for their constituents. That said, um, to the extent that it enables Democrats to go and then spend $3.5 trillion in reconciliation, that is going to put a phenomenal amount of pressure on Republicans to just torpedo the whole thing. And understandably so, right? You know, what they were saying was, look, I am willing to work with you on the bipartisan stuff we can agree with. Uh, we can agree on, but if this is just, I'm going to get your signature on the stuff that we both agree on, and then I'm going to go do all the other stuff anyway, um, then there's much less incentive to to compromise. Now, you know, maybe Democrats can go and and do that by themselves, but I think there's a lot of stuff in the infrastructure bill that's kind of hard to see pushing through reconciliation, and for that matter, there's a lot of stuff in the, in the 3.5 trillion that's hard to see pushing through reconciliation. And, and, and I want to point out that Megan is correct. I got it wrong. It was not $3.2 trillion. It is $3.5 trillion. Some would say that that's a rounding, rounding error, when you, error when you get to numbers that big. But accuracy is important. Say that again? What's $300 billion between friends? I mean, really. Right, maybe they'll when you compromise don't have it. down to your number and you'll be a profit, Jonathan. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. But EJ... Uh, another thing that we'll see about that is uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's sort of hardball tactic of advancing the, the bill to the floor. Um, I think he's going to do this next Wednesday. Yeah, this is the, the procedural vote that uh, is supposed to happen. Is that going to work? Is, is that hardball move going to get everyone to go from, hey, we've agreed on a number to, hey, here's what's in the bill to, hey, let's all vote to let it proceed to an actual full uh, full vote. I think the hardball might succeed because all these people want to go on vacation and start fundraising for whenever their next election uh, is. Uh, and I think Schumer's move reflects uh, a fear Democrats have that uh, lasts from the old Obamacare fight, that if we let Republicans string us along and string us along and everybody's talking about process, uh, Democrats lose, even if they ultimately win the fight uh, in the end. Uh, and so I think it's a good move. I think he's trying to force agreement. The bipartisan negotiations have been going on for a long time. I think one of the things on the um, bill, the big bill, uh, $3.5 trillion, that uh, should be emphasized is the Senate Budget Committee and the House Budget Committee are both pretty good microcosms of the entire Democratic caucus. Um, you know, that, that Senator Mark Warner uh, and Bernie Sanders on the Budget Committee were able to negotiate this through, and each of them represents different pieces of the party in both the House uh, and the Senate. I am relatively optimistic on this, uh, certainly compared to other people, uh, because I think Democrats realize that if they let this fail collectively, uh, it's on all of them. And if they make the Biden presidency a failed presidency, it's on all of them and it hurts all of them. 
on the bipartisan bill, this is going to be fascinating because there's a lot of stuff in the bipartisan bill that Republicans really want. Somebody in the White House pointed out to me, for example, coastal resilience, um, you know, because of climate change. That's really popular in a state like South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham would really like to protect Charleston and all the other coastal areas of South Carolina. So it's going to be an interesting choice. And we don't know where Mitch McConnell is going to end up. He might decide that if we vote, if a Republic, some Republicans vote for the smaller bill, he'll be able to make an argument. We were for the basic stuff, but we weren't for this big other bill. We're going to see how that plays out. Well, as uh, Senate Majority, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, promised, uh, it's going to be, quote, one hell of a fight. Uh, Megan, let's turn to the, the, the visit by German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, she and the president had a joint press conference yesterday um, where you could see, I mean, everybody could see that the rapport between President Biden and, and Chancellor Merkel is a whole lot different than the rapport between Chancellor Merkel and, um, and Donald Trump. Um, what signal do you think um, that sent to, to the country, to the alliance, to the world, to see what looks like a, a sort of a renewed warm relationship between the leader, the leader of Germany and the leader of the United States? I think it's very much wait and see. I mean, look, it, I, we can look back and it's hard to think of a European leader uh, that Trump had a warm rapport with unless you count Russia as being part of Europe. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there, well said, Megan. This is, this is a completely different, you know, we're now trying to rebuild that relationship. But that said, I mean, two things, it is badly frayed, but in some ways for kind of reasons of self-interest. We tended to a little bit overweight the effect that Trump was having, as opposed to the fact that the Germans have their own perceived self-interest. They do things because they think it will benefit Germans, even if it will make us upset. And so things like the pipeline from Russia, which they're building, um, you know, it is going to make Europe more dependent um, on, on Russian energy. It is going to make things tricky with Ukraine, for example. Um, and that's something the U.S. has been against for a long time. But the sense that I get from talking to people in Europeans is that it's a kind of convenient, convenient excuse. Trump made us do it. Germany wants to do this for German uh, reasons of foreign policy. Um, you know, and I think that that just kind of signals where we were moving regardless. It's not to downplay the phenomenal damage that Trump has done to our, our, um, our international relation, relations. But that we're moving to a more multipolar world, and in a more multi multipolar world, people are simply going to inherently pay less attention um, to what the United States says because there are other centers of power to consider. Um, EJ, another thing to to consider about uh, German Chancellor Merkel's visit to the United States was the dinner that happened. I believe it was I believe it was last yeah uh, last night at the White House. And it, the, it, among the American, <clears throat> excuse me, American guests at the dinner, secret, former secretaries of state Hillary Clinton, Democrat, Colin Powell, Republican, but you also had House Minority Leader um, Kevin McCarthy and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer were not there for reasons I, I, I don't know. But how significant is it that McCarthy and McConnell 
were actually at a dinner at the White House with the Democratic president, considering everything else that's swirling around this Capitol. I wish I could be really optimistic about that, but I think what it means is it's a tribute to Angela Merkel. This is a remarkable woman. Whatever anybody thinks of her politics, whatever agreements or disagreements uh, they have, 16 years uh, in power uh, in a free a country with free elections um, is really remarkable. She has occupied the center ground in German politics since the time she took power. She is also, um, and I don't agree with her on everything myself, but I really admire the fact that she has been a such a consistent small d Democrat uh, and so consistent also uh, as a humanitarian. I didn't agree, Megan probably did agree with some of her austerity uh, approaches uh, back in 2008. But I think a lot of this was a tribute to her uh, and to the fact that despite the disagreements that Megan rightly pointed to, uh, she has been a real friend of the United States, uh, especially uh, when the United States stood up for democratic values, which is to say she only had real trouble when Donald Trump was president. Um, Megan, sorry to keep playing time cop, but we've got two minutes, but I got to get you to talk about something um, that you wrote about, um, billionaires in space. You had Sir Richard Branson, who went up last Sunday um, on his um, funded vehicle with his little quick trip to space. Jeff Bezos, full disclosure, he personally owns the Washington Post, but he is due to go up uh, next week. Critics say that this is an ostentatious show of wealth, but you say that what Branson and Bezos are doing in space matters to humanity. Why? So I should also disclose, uh, yes, Jeff Bezos owns my paper, and I have wanted to go to space forever, so I'm happy <laughs> because it means like I feel a little one step closer. Um, you know, my husband and I, when they were when when uh, Branson finished his flight, we're like, so how much would we mortgage the house if we could <laughs> go on this plane? Uh, luckily, it's theoretical at this point. But you know, look, I think if you think about space, um, it is necessary for a bunch of reasons. One of which, and not to say we should like use up the planet we have and then go on and find new ones. Uh, but it's necessary as a kind of insurance policy. If you look at, you know, the dinosaurs are extinct because we got hit by a big asteroid that we probably wouldn't be able to stop right now. A space program is an investment in eventually having the capability to interfere with asteroids. It is an investment in being able to go and find new things, scientific things that we don't even know about going to other worlds. It is an investment. And if there's extraterrestrial life out there, it would be good to know about it. Um, and mm. the only way we're going to get there is by incremental improvement, right? We tend to overweight breakthrough innovation, which is we did inventing the automobile, inventing the plane. Well, if you look at what the, the first airplane, it's basically a giant motorized bots kite. And it took a lot of really incremental improvements over decades and decades, more than a century now, to get it to the point where you can just hop in an airliner and fly across the world. Um, and that mm. is more people who are doing that the more likely that kind of innovation is to happen. And you know, it's not that government doesn't have a role. Obviously it does. NASA put us right. on the moon and they have resources that private people can't match, but it's only a handful of players. And that puts us at mm -hmm. risk of space. Having a lot of and players out there, <laughs> the more the merrier. The more the merrier. Well, uh, I'm gonna start saving, saving my money. I'm sorry, EJ, we are out of time. Megan McArdle, 
Uh, E.J. Dion, thank you very much, as always, for coming to First Look. And I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about all of our upcoming programs. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.